Good morning, church. It's so good to be here today. Um, We've had a a really full season here at Kingscliff, and uh, whilst the Arise students have gone, um, it gives us the opportunity as well to to really reap the benefits here. Uh, There's so many resources that we have at our fingertips, and we have the opportunity now to really utilise them and to and to share with our community. Uh, Arise has done a great work this year, and we're, we're so thankful for that. But today, we're going to dive into a new series. Did anyone here growing up eat at the family table? Anyone? Um, all right. Did anyone here growing up always eat at the family table? Always. I'm going to put the always in there. Yeah, I think that'll match the statistics. Um, So I'm excited for this series. It's going to be in three parts, and we'll go through that in just a moment. But church, we have a problem. We have a problem. Only 30% of families regularly have dinner together. Notice it doesn't specify a table. 30% of families regularly have dinner together. Growing up in my family, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say in the old days, but it wasn't that so long ago because even as adults, we've discovered that we still do this, right? Um, in our families, the family table was a, was a safe place. It was a place where we could sit around the family table or around the lounges in the lounges or with our meal, sharing with one another. Not just about spiritual things, but about life things, about what was going on in our lives and our parents could speak into us and, in fact, we could have a healthy, stiff debate across the table as we do in our families and it was a place that we could, we could test the boundaries. We could, and both seeing that both Michaela's and my dad's are pastors, that was extra vigorous because it inevitably would land in theology. Uh, I think even last night, right, we were having a phone call with our family and our debate ended up about theology. Now, you might think that's completely boring, but for our families, that's stimulating and invigorating and it helps us to push those boundaries and to discover the edges and the beauty within. I'm sure some of you might be bored by a theological conversation over the dinner table, but the point remains that no matter what we do, right, our family table, our family should be a place where we can come with everything that we have and just be us. So, what's happened? 30% of families regularly have dinner together. And then I found another interesting stat as well, and that is that 30, only 30% of families regularly have worship, and that can be as regular as once a week. 30, and this is Adventist data. This isn't data from all of Christendom. This is just Adventist data done by David Trim. It was in the Adventist Review around about eight months ago. 30% of families regularly have worshipped together. And we wonder why 
Our people don't know how to do this. This isn't the only reason. We wonder why our people don't know how to do their own spirituality. Perhaps it's never truly been modelled for them how to have a relationship with God. Perhaps there's a deeper problem at play as well. So the family table, what are we going to go through? Well, today we're going to go through the problem. I told you that we have a problem. And today we're going to discover what's going on, some stats, some figures, some research that is highlighting some of the things that we're facing. We're going to end with a bit of hope. So it's not going to be all doom and gloom. Hold on, we'll find some hope as we, as we dig through this sermon, okay? Trust me. Uh, and then next week, we're going to go through the church. We're going to look at the church, what the church is meant to be, and I hope that we will discover all that the church can be, um, at least from the biblical sense, and I hope we discover what the church can be here in 2022. Because church still has a place in our society. Um, there's still a place for church in, in, in the Australian uh, context in 2022. Research shows that church has a special role to play in people's lives, and it's not all doom and gloom there either. And then we're finally going to unpack what the family's like. Never before have we seen family look as broken. Broken families are becoming the norm. So how can we do family well here at Kingscliff in light of the way that families are looking? Because it's often not through anyone's fault that a family is broken. So what role do you and I play in creating family for people? And what does family actually mean? And that's what we're going to unpack in this series. But I want to bring forward this idea that's going to be a bit of a thread throughout the series. And it's that the kingdom of heaven is like a family table. When we dig through the Bible, we discover all of these statements from Jesus that says the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And I want to propose that the kingdom of heaven is like a family table. You see, we discover in Luke chapter 14 a great wedding banquet. And we're going to unpack this passage next next week. But there's this great wedding banquet and the person is hosting the, the wedding banquet for his son. He's like, no one who's invited has taken their place here at this banquet. And I want to suggest that when he sends his slave out to invite people to come and take their place at this banquet, no matter whether they're good or bad, I want to suggest that that seat at the banquet is for you and me. It's also for our kids. It's for our teenagers. It's for our young adults. It's for our elderly. It's for everyone in between has a seat at the great banquet. There's nothing in terms of your age, that disqualifies you from taking your place at the great banquet. And you see, Michaela and I, without knowing, we took this to heart, because this is a photo from our wedding. But at our wedding, we ended up with a whole table. With, I'd estimate maybe 50 kids. I can't remember the number. We had like 50 kids at our wedding. Now, I've been to countless weddings where they're like, no kids. No kids at all. But at us, we went, we're a family. And Michaela has a big family. I have a big family. And family isn't family if there's no kids there. A wedding banquet in heaven is not a wedding banquet in heaven without the kids taking their place at the table. 
scribbling, coloring, making a mess. These are our flower girls. Doing whatever needs to happen, making the kingdom of heaven full of vibrance and color. My worry is, however, church, that our kingdom of heaven that we have here on earth is starting to have less and less of this vibrance in it. What do I mean by that? As I said, we have a problem. There's less and less kids in the kingdom of heaven here and now here on earth. There's less and less young adults and teenagers in Christianity here on earth here and now. My dream is that when we get to that wedding banquet that, we, that Jesus speaks about in Luke 14 through a parable, that it's going to be full of vibrance and colour and mess, good mess, like pencils everywhere and crayons everywhere, the kind of mess that brings joy to our hearts. So we've got a problem. We have more than 50 years of membership data in the Adventist church. And this 50 years of membership data in the Adventist church shows us that globally, excluding deaths, obviously, two out of five members choose to leave the Adventist church. I'm going to repeat that. Around about 40%, it's actually 42%, just over two out of five, 42% of members that become an Adventist choose to leave the Adventist church. That's a high figure. It's a high rate of attrition, and that's over 50 years, even before things started to accelerate, particularly in our secular countries. A lot of this data is also American-centric, and America is behind where we are. We are ahead. By that, I mean there's, we are at a higher rate of people leaving the Adventist church. 62.5% of those that chose to leave did so when they were young. Now, young is defined as anywhere from around about the age of 10 through to about the age of 30. That's when they chose to leave the Adventist Now, we can start to throw some assertions out there and saying they left because of this reason or that reason. We can try and blame some things, right? And I hear that some people try to, to blame they went to uni and they were infected with worldly ideas. That statement for me doesn't hold up. These people are choosing to leave when they are embedded in Adventist community. Another startling statistic from the growing young research from 2016 says that 50% of young people leave church in America. That's in America. And I said we're ahead of that. Let's let this figure sink in. Over 72% church of Australian young adults who attended church in their teens will ultimately become spiritually disengaged at some point during their 20s. They might still be on our books and we might still be counting them as members but they're not in our pews. They're not in our church family. We don't have them connected into community. As I said, we have a problem. That will be sometimes during their 20s. Another startling figure, and it's increasing. 50,000 young people drift away from faith in Australia every single year. That is a rate of 900 per week. That is a whole Avondale school, if you know how big Avondale school is, leaving Christianity every single week. That isn't just Adventism, I'll make sure I clarify that. It's all of Christianity in Australia as a whole. I know I'm going to be making you feel a little depressed right now. We're going to get some hope, okay? We're going to get some hope. But I need to, to bring the gravity to you, right? This is a serious problem. 
and a simple program or a simple event or more summer camps or more Arise isn't going to fix the problem. I'm being real with you. They're all great things and they help, okay? They help. But they're not going to fix the problem. That 50,000 number for me was startling because we have 61,000 Seventh-day Adventists in Australia. We're a relatively small group in Australia, right? Now, that's slightly out because I did that off my, my memory. That's probably about a year old or two years old. But we have 61,000 Seventh-day Adventists in the AUC. I'm going to ask you my favourite question. Whenever I, I throw data or theology or any idea out there, I like to ask this question. So what? So what? What does this mean for us? So what do we do about it? Does anyone here have the silver bullet solution? You're looking to me for that silver bullet? All right, let's see if we can get a silver bullet, but there's no promises. Um, because it starts with you, and it starts with me. Um, whenever we bring this data to, out, I always hear from someone in a church, but what about the old people? We're important too. You are. Everyone's important in church, right? I know that. There's some of our senior members here who are some of the most essential members of our community in helping us do this. Many of your generations, if I, if I can got the data right, lots of them stayed in the church. There's some that left, but the majority stayed in church. But that's changing. That's slipping. And so I'm going to be real. The solution is not a kids-only focused church. We're not just going to only run a kids' church every single Sabbath and everyone will have to deal with it. That's not going to happen. The solution is an everybody focus. It's a focus on all of us. I'm going to give you some definitions now. Have you guys ever heard the word multi-generational? Anyone ever heard that word multi-generational? Multi-generational is what used to be people say, we need to be multi-generational. But multi-generational, what it actually means is the kids are over there doing their kids' thing. The adults are in here doing their adult thing. The elderly are over there doing their thing, right? And the young adults are up there doing their thing. And we don't really want to have to give and take a little bit to care for everyone. We just want, as long as our needs are met, we're all good. That's what happens in multi-generational spaces. We just care for the needs of each specific group individually in a silo, and never the twain shall mix. Rather, church, I suggest to you today that we need, not just as Kingscliff, but as a wider church body as well, but especially in our local context, as we can be an example of how this is done well, we need to operate in an intergenerational way. Intergenerational. There's all these buzzwords in theology that we like to throw around. This has become the buzzword for the last, I'd say, five or six years. But it's an important word. To be intergenerational means to integrate. When we integrate, we become one. We need to become truly one body. We need to maybe change a few little things in the way that we do things, or, or, or perhaps we need to mix things up a little bit so that we can be one. 
where everybody has a place to be them at church, at the family table. So church, we need a whole of church approach. I've seen churches have lots and lots and lots of kids. In fact, I went to a church once um, that had a kids' ministry where there was 300 kids. It's an Adventist church where it had 300 kids under the age of 10 at their church. Can you imagine that? Almost all the kids that I went through Sabbath school with in that group don't attend church. My cohort, my friends, lots of them don't attend church. In fact, I am an Adventist pastor because I'm the anomaly. I'm the, one of the few who stayed in church, who decided to choose a job that's service-oriented and that decided to give my life to ministry for God. But most of my generation aren't in church anymore. And I'd say the figure is higher than that 72% that we saw. They might still be on the church books. The pastor might still know who they are, but ultimately they are not a part of the spiritual body. Hmm. So unless we have kids integrated, unless we have young adults, our youth, every single one of you who's sitting here today integrated into community where they know each other, where they feel loved and accepted for all the mess they bring to church, we're going to struggle to turn that tide. One of my favourite quotes from Jake Mulder, he's at Fuller Youth uh, Seminary, Fuller Youth Institute, he's at Fuller Seminary in the US They wrote one of the most compelling books in recent times, Growing Young, and they also wrote another really compelling book, Sticky Faith. And they've got a a couple of new really compelling books as well that I'm just trying to dig my way through. But he says that when young people rise, all people rise. In their research and in their... It wasn't just data, in their stories that they gathered. They discovered that when young people were in church and integrated into community... The older people felt more vibrant and had more energy and found church to be a more fulfilling experience as well. Is that correct for any of you? I'm just making a story. Is that correct? Yeah. My best days as a pastor when church is messy and there's kids everywhere and there's noise. I'm going to steal my dad's quote now because my dad's famous saying is that if you can hear a baby crying, that means the church is growing. If you can't hear a baby crying, it means the church is dying. Hmm. It's too true. I, I strongly believe that. Some other research is from this guy called David Kinnaman. And David Kinnaman, he says, cultivating intergenerational relationships is one of the most important ways in which effective faith communities are developing flourishing faith in both young and old. In many churches, this means changing the metaphor from just passing on the baton like a relay race to the next generation to a more functional biblical picture of a body. That is, the entire community of faith across the entire lifespan, whether you're zero or a hundred, I love that, working together to fulfil God's purposes. 
Last week, we heard a riveting sermon from Robbie, where Robbie spoke about that some of us have to do the legwork. But in doing the legwork, it means that we have to be the functional body of Christ, willing to function together, whether young or old, to integrate together. So what does Jesus have to say about this? You're like, so what? Lots of authors have written about this, but what does Jesus have to say? Well, Jesus himself had to intervene to enable the children to experience him. Everyone else was in the road. I love, I, I love this passage. It's from, from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15. I'm going to read it. It says, Then the little children were being brought to him in order that he may lay hands on them and pray. The disciples, his followers, spoke sternly to those who brought them. But Jesus said, I love this, Jesus had to intervene with his own disciples because they were like, you're too busy, you don't have time for this, you're teaching, this is in the middle of him doing a whole bit of teaching about the second coming, about um, to the Pharisees, and he was calling the Pharisees out on a lot of stuff, and they said, you're too busy. The children... Stay over here. And then Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such of these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And we normally stop there. But for me, the next verse is even more important. What does the laying of hands represent? Anyone, anyone know? What does the laying on of hands represent in the Bible? Sorry? Blessing and anointing and ordination, we might use that word, but he was setting them apart, right? He was blessing them, that they may go in the way of him. That's what we do when we dedicate a child or a baby, is we dedicate them that their parents in the community may help raise them in the way of Jesus. So when it says, and he laid hands on them and went on his way. He blessed these children, he took the time in the middle, in the middle of Jesus' busy ministry schedule to lay his hands on these children and bless them. And elsewhere it also says, and we, we should know this one well, that unless we become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. The Bible is... He's pretty clear on this, that we're one body, that kids, that young adults, that teenagers, that all of us, young or old, have an important part in the ministry of God's kingdom. And the fact that Jesus had to intervene, I think, says everything. There's nothing exclusive about the gospel church. There's nothing that excludes people from experiencing the gospel. Christianity or the world or whatever you want to throw in there loves to throw up barriers and, and make the gospel a more complicated thing than it actually is. The gospel is not complicated. And the fact of the matter is that I do studies with kids who accept the gospel and understand the reality of what they're choosing to do when they get baptised, they understand it. They get it. They understand the whole salvation process. They'll be able to sit there and probably explain the way that salvation works to you. In fact, I'd love to probably get a kid up in the future and to preach that to you guys, because they get it, right? They get it. 
Young people don't get, young adults, teenagers, kids, they don't get a junior version of the Holy Spirit that needs to grow up with them. No, they get the same Holy Spirit that you and I receive. All of humanity gets that same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't minimise himself. In fact, he works through kids powerfully. He works through the young adults in our church powerfully. We see it. He works through the teenagers in our church powerfully. If you think that God can't work through you, the Holy Spirit's right there ready to work through you and partner with you. We've learned about that. We've dug through it over the past 12 months here at Kingscliff. We've been serious about that. So I want to bring the question down to you and ask you the so what. Jesus had to intervene. So what? Who is there in your life that you need to intervene for? Is there your own children that you are praying for daily and hoping that you're raising them in the way of Jesus? Is there your grandchildren who maybe aren't quite getting a picture of God and and you want to intervene for them and to show them the way of Jesus? Maybe you're a senior person now and your kids didn't stick in the church and you're heartbroken about that. Maybe you need to intervene for them and continue to pray and share God's love to them as well. Who is in our lives that we need to intervene for. I'm going to bring it back down to kids for a moment because Ellen White did. She had a lot to say on this. I just grabbed her most powerful quote, but they were all powerful. Um, this is from Child Guidance, a really, really good book. But if you... This is one of her most famous quotes about this topic. She says, Too much importance cannot be placed on the early training of children. The lessons that the child learns during the first seven years of their life have more to do with forming their character than all that it learns in their future years. How many years do we have, church? Seven. George Barner backed Ellen White up in 2009 with one of his most transformative works, in 2003 as well, where he noted that by the age of nine, the spiritual and moral and ethical foundations for the way a child will go have been laid. Have been, they've all been sorted out by then. Now, we can certainly change things further on a little bit, but that is where the bulk of the work happens. In fact, if we understand child development, we know that in that age, in that age range, their brains are forming so quickly and are starting to understand more and more complex ideas. Of course those foundations are in place. Seven, nine. It was backed up 100 years later, or more than 100 years later. So we all have a role, church, in building the faith of young people. It's a bit of a poor graphic because it was difficult to find on NCLS, which is the Australian National Church Life um, Christian, Christian Life Survey. Um, and this data, it highlights the most significant people who show me, an individual, what their faith is about. Number one, mums. Number two, dads. Mums and dads. Our parents show us the way of God. Our parents teach us the ways in which we will go. 
Thankfully, or not thankfully, I'm next. It says pastor. But don't think after that you're not important. Someone's spouse, if you're married to someone who isn't a Christian, you're showing them what Christianity is all about. That's heavy, right? Our grandparents? Grandparents, you guys have an essential role in teaching children, in teaching people about what God is like. Peers and friends, the way that you as high schoolers and teenagers and young adults, the way that you act around your friends that are Christian, but also the way that you are and the way that you are a Christian around your people who aren't Christian has an essential impact, has a massive impact in the way they see church and in their likelihood to understand who God is. We all have an impact. And we get even going, other family members, uncles, aunties, cousins, great-aunts, great-uncles. And we continue to speakers at events, Sabbath school or Sunday school teachers, SRE teachers. We've got people here who teach scripture in schools, right? You have an impact on the way those kids see Christianity and see God. And that impacts their faith. Youth group leaders, other attendees here at church, the way that we treat each other church teaches kids and others about faith. Do we treat each other with kindness or with hostility? Do we treat each other with respect or disrespect? And it continues on through to school teachers, Christian authors, other people, people on radio, TV, and then the answer is don't know. My message is we all have an impact in the spirituality of each other and the kids and the young people and the teenagers and the high school people in our church community. We all have a role to play because, church, four in five faith decisions are made before 20 in Australia. I'm going to ask a controversial question. Where do we invest most for faith decisions? I'll let it hang. But four in five decisions before the age of 20 in Australia, this is by McCrindle Research, he's one of the best demographers that we have. He's a Christian, but he does demographics for all kinds of industries, and their group, over a long period of time, has discovered this. And there's another graph, which I could have put up, which shows that the majority of these decisions, like 40% of these decisions before the age of 20, happen before the age of 10. So two in five are before 10. Church, we have a special role to play in the way that we do church in this space. Next week, we're going to unpack unpack the way that church is done and the way that impacts people. Because I truly believe that the kingdom of heaven is like a table, like a family table, like a great banquet. Jesus notes in Luke 14, and I think it's, also, I can't remember what it is in Matthew. I think in Matthew 22. I have to go double check. Matthew 22. But in his Luke 14 account and in the Matthew account, from that parable we discover that there is a place at the great banquet of heaven prepared for you. Whether you're zero or whether you're 100 or more, a 
It's prepared for you. My question is, is will your family, will our church family be at that table? Will we see our kids, our young adults, that 72% that leave at that table? Because church, I think it's quite simple. We, and we're talking about me here as well, are responsible for ensuring that no one is hindered, whether they're young or old, from coming to the feet of Jesus. Whenever I am in a space where we're making a decision about someone, someone's spirituality or, or someone being baptised, I would pray that we don't disqualify them from the kingdom of God for something that's really simple. I would pray that we don't disqualify people from the kingdom of God based on the way that they simply are. Because I want my kids, when I've run the, when I've run the race, when I've, I've done it as well as I can, to be in the kingdom of God. I want my sister, who has seen a relatively poor image of the church at times, to be in the kingdom of God. I want you to be at that wedding banquet table with me. I want to see you across and we can clink glasses and, and toast for the fact that we're there with each other in community. Church, no one in our circle should miss the invitation to this party. So my final challenge to you today is who can you invite to take a seat at this banquet? Next week, as we start to unpack the way we do church, we're going to discover some ways that we can turn that tide, that we can turn the tide of those depressing figures and turn them into something beautiful, that we can have success and that we as a church can flourish and maybe even be a bit noisy at times, but flourish. That's my dream. Are you willing to go on that journey with me next week? I'm going to finish with a prayer now. Um, and as I pray, I want to pray for your family, kind of like the blessing from Numbers. That's my favourite passage. And that blessing, it's not just to the first generation, it's to the next and to the next and to the next and to the next. And I pray upon your family that we see God's blessing to, to countless generations. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for Kingscliff Church. I just love this church. Lord, I, I thank you for the fact that in your gospel that you intervened and made sure that children came to your feet and were blessed. And Lord, as, as we go through this series, I pray that we may be inspired, that we may find someone in our family that we can invite to have a table at that great wedding banquet that the kingdom of God is like. And Lord, I pray that our families are blessed, that our family tables are full. And Lord, I pray that as we go home, as we, just, as we digest 
these figures that you will reveal to each of us a way that we can do community better. In your wonderful name I pray, amen.